This podcast contains graphic content and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Hey guys, it's Kayla. It's Katie. And you're listening to Murder, Mayhem, and Merlot. another episode late at night yes actually it's not that late it's not it's only 9 15 but it feels like 12 or 1 yeah it feels like we've been at this for a while it's this time change it's really messing with me i feel like i could go to bed at six o'clock but i know i'm gonna go home after this and i'm gonna stay up till two or three in the morning because that's what i do well not me I will probably. <laughs> she will fall asleep yes. as soon as we start editing this episode. Like she always does. <laughs> if there's one thing Kayla's going to do, it's go to sleep. I blame it. One day I'm going to upload the clip of her snoring. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No. I blame it. You know, I <laughs> am a vitamin D, B12, and iron deficient girly. Okay. Because she doesn't go as hot. She hates the sun. <laughs> 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 okay yes the sun is good in some aspects but it's actually very dangerous in a lot of other aspects okay well also when you go outside in the springtime and summertime she has an entire bottle of sunscreen on i do i do and on her family yeah it's important i'm not gonna go into I get putting a lot on the on the kids I'm not going to go into the statistics you, of skin cancer, you Katie. You don't have to, to put that much on. Katie, number you one. You made yourself deficient. You made no. yourself deficient. No. Katie, number one, I. I would love to see how much zinc you have in your body. <laughs> right. Katie, I look like a lobster if I've been out in the sun for more than 15 minutes. Okay. Number <laughs> one. you don't go out in the sun. Number one. Number You're not two. Number number two. I don't have like the correct numbers in my head right now because it's very late, but usually I do. But the statistics for statistics. Statistics. <laughs> the sta- <laughs> okay. okay. So she has statistics. The data <laughs> shows that the more sun. <laughs> the more sunburns you get, she just punched her mic. Shut up. The more sunburns you get, the higher chance of skin cancer you have. So, excuse me for wanting to protect myself. And also, yes, I put a lot of sunscreen on my kids. Number one, you should. That's normal. And uh, but number two, I have a child. I'm who, talking about you. Who takes chemo? Who makes him exponentially more um, sensitive to the sun? And then I have a redhead, okay? So I'm screwed, Katie. I'm just screwed. I said the voice is normal. You, however... Just go, do your damn episode. <laughs> <laughs> We're done with this conversation. Okay, me and Deficient will now get into the episode. Oh, my God. <laughs> I am doing Death, the Landlady. 
like, well, isn't all of our episodes basically about death? death? But anyways. Yeah. Dorothea Puente. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. She, her story was on Netflix. What was that show series called? It was something about like my roommate is a killer or something like that. Yeah. It was on there. Except she wasn't the roommate. She was the landlady. And they were roommates. And they were roommates. Uh. Anyway, if you didn't have fun, you don't get it. No. <laughs> Dorothy Puente seemed to be a sweet, elderly woman living in Sacramento, California in the 1980s. She owned and ran a boarding house for the old and disabled and all seemed normal from the outside looking in. But no one could have imagined the evil that she was doing inside of this home. It always looks normal from the outside looking in most of the time. Unless the outside of your house looks not normal. Right. And then it doesn't. Right. Yeah. Anyways. I need ghetto. (laughs) (laughs) Ratatata. I just like saying that. (laughs) Dorothea was born Dorothea Helen Gray on January 9th, 1929 in Redlands, California to Trudy May and Jesse James Gray. Dorothea came from a large family, which was pretty common at the time. She had five older siblings and one younger, so she was the sixth out of seven. Her parents were migrant workers in California and both pretty notorious alcoholics. Her mother was also pretty well known for beating the children on a regular basis. When Dorothea was just eight, her father died from tuberculosis and her mother died just a year later after her father in a motorcycle accident, which I was just like, I'm picturing motorcycles today and I just know that that's not what it looked like. Don't even get me started. Anyway. (laughs) Her mother had lost custody of the children in 1938, just months before she passed away in the accident. After her mother passed away when she was nine, leaving her and her siblings orphans, Dorothea, like the others, went her own way. She jumped from foster homes to relatives' houses back and forth until she was 16, where she left her foster home at the time to start her own life. She was tired of the physical and sexual abuse that she suffered at the hands of her foster parents, so she left California and traveled over 1,000 miles north. She arrived in Olympia, Washington, and tried to make a living as a prostitute. This is where Dorothea met her first husband, Fred McFall, in 1945. Fred was a soldier who had just returned from the Pacific Theater of World War II. The marriage had only lasted three years, but they did have two children together during this time. But Dorothea was not interested in raising her children or taking care of her children, so she sent one child to live with family members while the other child was put up for adoption. In 1948, Fred filed for divorce, and after it was finalized, Dorothea moved to California again. Dorothea was behind bars for the first time shortly after her return to California. She was arrested for forging a check in San Bernardino and served four months in jail. After her release, she was put on probation, but she had other plans and left the town six months after her release. She made her way to San Francisco, where she met and married her second husband, Axel Bryn Johansson, in 1952 at the age of 23. Dorothea came up with a whole new identity for herself. She told Axel that her name was Taya Singola Nayarda. She told him that she was a Muslim woman of Egyptian descent. Again, she had a pretty rocky marriage due to her gambling and her drinking problems. 
And at some point, Dorothea was found running a brothel under the guise of a bookkeeping firm where she unknowingly offered an under undercover under <laughs> an undercover under the sea. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what just happened. An undercover cop a sexual favor. She was then arrested in 1960 for prostitution and operating a brothel. After she was released from jail in 1961, Axel took Dorothea to a psychiatric ward called DeWitt State Hospital and had her admitted. There, doctors diagnosed her as a pathological liar with an unstable personality, though she was not kept long in the institution, and the two stayed married after she was released. The two got divorced after 14 years of marriage in 1966. Shortly after their divorce, Dorothea started going by the name Sharon Johansson and portrayed herself as a devout Christian woman. She began providing for women from poverty and abusive situations. Probably like the one nice thing she ever did. Mm. Dorothea would marry two more times in her life. Her third husband was Roberto Puente in 1968. They had been married for 16 months. Dorothea reported that her then-husband was abusive and filed for divorce. Their divorce was not finalized until 1973. In 1975, Dorothea took out a restraining order on Roberto, yet continued to use his last name. Dorothea started running a boarding house that was on 15th and F Streets in Sacramento. Puente was admired for her work as the landlady of her boarding house. Social workers loved Dorothea for her reputation. Puente took in some of the hardest people to work with and board. She took in the elderly, drug addicts, alcoholics, and the mentally ill. She held AA meetings daily and helped those individuals sign up for Social Security benefits. She started dressing even older for her age to make herself look like this meek, sweet old lady. She wore vintage clothing, large glasses, and let her hair turn completely gray. So she just like went around town just acting like she was super old. She wasn't that old at the time. (laughs) Dorothea began donating to charities and starting scholarships in Sacramento's Hispanic community. This is how she eventually met and married Pedro Angel Montalvo, though he left their marriage only a week after getting married. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine being married for seven days. He's like, no, nah, I've had about enough of this. That, yeah, that was... Got a little taste. I'm going to head out. I mean, he really did it before Kim Kardashian. Yeah. You know? Damn. This house and the admiration for Dorothea would not last long, however. On December 21st, 1978, Dorothea was convicted of cashing 34 state and federal checks that belonged to her tenants. She was given five years of probation and made to pay $4,000 in restitution. Oof. Yeah. On January 16th, 1982, she picked up Malcolm McKenzie, who was 74, and took him back to his apartment. McKenzie later reported to police that Puente had put something in his drink and then robbed him of money and other valuables which included a diamond ring that belonged to his now-deceased mother. What a bitch. Uh, Yeah. On April 28, 1982, Ruth Monroe, who was 61, was found dead due to respiratory issues caused by a massive overdose of codeine. People who knew Ruth said that she was in good health before she arrived at Puente's boarding house just over two weeks before her death, though just days before her death, she told a friend, quote, I'm so sick, I feel like I'm going to die. Monroe's death was originally ruled... As an accidental overdose, but would later be changed to homicide. On May 16, 1982, Dorothy Osborne, who was 49, discovered checks, credit cards, and other items missing just hours after Puente had visited her home and made her a drink. 
In July of 1982, Puente was convicted of three grand theft charges. She was sentenced to five years in prison and was to be put on parole until March 21st of 1986. While she was serving time, her parole was extended another two years to last until 1990. While she was incarcerated, she began sending and receiving letters with a man named Everson Theodore Gilmuth, a 77-year-old man from Oregon. In early September of 1985, Gilmuth came to Sacramento with the truck and trailer and arrived at Puente's boarding house, which was still located at that original address. She just like reopened it back up after she got out. On September 9, 1985, after only serving half of her sentence, Puente was released from prison, where she was then picked up by Gilmuth and a man named Ricardo, who lived with his family in the downstairs flat of 1426 F Street. In October of 1985, Puente wrote to Gilmuth's sister, telling her that she and Gilmuth were going to get married on November 2nd. Not long after, Puente hired a handyman, Ismael Carrasco Flores, to remodel some things in the house, and she also asked him to build a 6-foot by 30-inch by 30-inch storage box. Hard quotations around storage box. She told Flores that in return for his work, she would give him Gilmas truck and $800 cash. After Flores finished the box, he came the day after they had finished it to help Dorothea move the box. When he arrived, he found that the storage box had been nailed shut, and when he went to go help Dorothea pick it up, he said that it was easily 300 pounds heavier than the day before. Flores was told that they were taking the box to a storage location, but instead... Dorothea drove them to a river about an hour away. On January 1st, 1986, a fisherman was at the same river when he discovered a body wrapped in several plastic bags and covered with a bed sheet that was taped onto the body with electrical tape. Mothballs and blue toilet deodorizer were also found inside of the box with the body. On December 28th, 1998, the body was identified as that of Everson Theodore Gilmuth. It was later discovered that Puente was mailing falsified letters to Gilma's sister to make it seem as if he were alive. Puente had also forged Gilma's signature on his truck title and cashed his benefits checks until July of 1986. Late in the year of 1986, Betty Mae Palmer, who was 78, arrived at Puente's boarding house. On October 14th, Puente got a fake ID made for the state of California with Betty's name on it. In December, the mailing address for Betty's checks was changed to the boarding house's address, and Puente forged Betty's signature and then cashed a little over $7,000 worth of her checks. Two years later, in November of 88, Betty's body would be discovered dismembered in a shallow grave in the front yard of the boarding house. Betty's lower legs, hands, and her head have never been found. After an autopsy was performed, doxalamine, haloperidol, and fluorazepam were found in her urine and bloodstream. She was identified through previous medical x-rays on January 24th of 1989. On October 21st in 86, Puente was in the hospital with one of her tenants, Leona Carpenter, who was 78 years old. Leona had overdosed on fluorazepam. Puente called for a notary to come to the hospital. Puente was then named the power of attorney for Leona and started cashing her social security checks less than two weeks later. Leona recovered and went back to the boarding house to live with Puente. She once again overdosed just weeks later, and she again recovered and was released from the hospital. 
In February of 87, Leona disappeared. Over a year later, in November of 88, Leona's body was found in the southeastern corner of the boarding house. Her toxicology report showed the presence of codeine, diazepam, and fluorazepam. James Gallup, who was 62, moved into the boarding house in February of 1987. On July 20th, a tumor was found in James's colon. He set up appointments that day after his doctor's visit learning the news for further testing, but Puente would later call the doctor's office back to cancel his appointments and told the doctors that James had left and moved to L.A. permanently. James's body would be found during the search in November of 88 under the gazebo in the yard. His toxicology report showed amitriptyline, nortriptyline, I could never say this one right, phenytoin, I think is how you say it. This is sad because I work at a pharmacy. <laughs> and florazepam. <laughs> I'm seeing a pattern. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Connecting these dots. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. If it wasn't already obvious. Mm-hmm. In July of 87, Eugene Gamble, 58, was discovered dead from an apparent suicide from an overdose on amitriptyline and ethanol. Puente told police and paramedics that Eugene had a history of mental illness and suicide attempts. Puente was never charged with Eugene's death, and it is still listed as suicide to this day. Hmm. Hmm. Vera Faye Martin, who was 61 at the time, was sent to live with Puente at the boarding house on October 2nd of 1987. Starting on October 5th, Puente started forging several of Vera's social security checks and received a total of over $7,000. October 19th was Vera's daughter's birthday, but her daughter never heard from her mother. Vera's daughter knew that she never missed calling her daughter on her birthday. And so she thought that this was suspicious, but she never told anyone about it and never reported it to police, which I'm like, if my mom did not contact me on my birthday, I'm calling the FBI. (laughs) Because that bitch better call me and wish me happy birthday. Listen to me. Okay. If my mom contacted me (laughs) on my birthday, I'm calling Ghostbusters. (laughs) (laughs) Or priest. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Who you gonna call? Ghostbusters! <laughs> Carry on. After a short break, um, <laughs> we are back. So her daughter never reported it to anybody. Anyway, Vera's body was later discovered again during the search in November of 88, buried underneath the metal shed in the backyard. Her toxicology revealed that she had fluorazepam in her system. October 21st, 1987, Dorothy Miller, who was 65, started living in one of the upstairs rooms in the boarding house. There, Puente introduced Dorothy to Ricardo, and that November, Ricardo became the representative payee for Dorothy's Social Security checks. So, little Ricardo, he he in on this. Mm -hmm. I would just like to point out, less than two months after her arrival at the house, Dorothy went missing. On November 20th, Puente hired a carpet cleaner to clean a large, quote, pile of foul-smelling slime in Dorothy's room. Puente continued to cash Dorothy's checks, totaling almost $11,000. Dorothy was found under a slab of concrete near some rose bushes. Her tox report showed carbamazepine and fluorazepam. November 29, 1987, Brenda Trujillo sent a letter to the Social Security office accusing Puente of stealing her checks. She said that Puente had cashed over 
$3,500 worth of her checks. Brenda had known Puente for years. The two had actually met when they were both in jail in 1982 and they shared a cell. After Brenda's release, she moved into Puente's boarding house. There, Puente helped Brenda sign up for Social Security benefits. Brenda said in the letter that Puente had contacted her parole officer and somehow got her parole revoked, which sent her back to jail. And that is when Puente started cashing her checks. In February of 1988, Alvaro Gonzalez Montoya, who went by Bert, who was 51 at the time, moved into Puente's boarding house. In March, Puente had Bert send in an application to the Social Security office asking that Puente be the benefits payee for Bert. In late August, another tenant saw a man cleaning out Bert's things from his room. Bert had also missed an appointment that was on August 29th. He was last seen on August 24th. When questions came up about Bert's whereabouts, Puente would say that he went to Mexico to visit his family. The Social Security office continuously tried to contact Bert, but never heard anything back. In November, Puente asked one of her tenants, Donald Anthony, who was a former convict, to call Bert's social worker and pretend to be Bert's brother-in-law. Donald agreed and called the office, stating that his name was Michael Obergon and that he had picked up Bert from the boarding house and took him to Utah. Believable. The social worker did not believe this and contacted the police. On November 10th, Bert's social worker also received a letter that was allegedly from Michael Obergon and... On a weird note, the letter had been wrapped in paper towels. Detectives believed to avoid fingerprints. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Dorothea really, she tried to take all the steps. Tried. Keyword. Tried. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, okay. Mm-hmm. This just furthered the social worker's suspicions. Just days later, Bert's body would be discovered buried across from Leona. His tox report showed... Loxapine, diphenhydramine, amitriptyline, carbamazepine, and lorazepam. Shocker. Yeah. But he did have prescriptions for all of those medications except for carbamazepine. Okay. So there, there were like two or three. I think that Leona Carpenter and Bert both had prescriptions for the florazepam. Mm-hmm. So after they passed... I'm betting that she kept that and was giving it to Oh yeah. Others. Cause Florazepam being everybody's talks. Yeah. All of them. There's only like maybe one that one or two that didn't have it, but Yeah. But most like the majority had Eugene that is still listed as suicide. He did not have it. No, and then there was another one. Well, Brenda is alive. Okay. She, yeah. She didn't she didn't she didn't get Brenda. She she didn't get Brenda. Brenda did not get God. <laughs> Go, Brenda. Go, Brenda. Brenda tattled on her ass. Yeah. The month after Bert had moved into the house, Benjamin Fink, who was 55, moved in as well. Benjamin's brother came to visit him at the house every single week. But that stopped after six weeks. By the end of April, Benjamin had disappeared. Another tenant started complaining of a foul smell coming from Benjamin's room. But when this was brought up to Puente, she brushed it off, telling the other tenant that the sewer system was backed up. No. No. Benjamin did. Benjamin did. Benjamin did. He did. Yeah. And she did it. Yeah. On April 29th, Puente got 12 bags of cement delivered to the boarding house. 
In June, she had a large hole dug up next to the metal shed in the backyard and used the cement to fill in the hole. So she just like dug a hole and then poured cement in it. Not for any particular reason. Right. It was literally next to the door of this metal shed. She just dug a hole and poured cement in it. So if that was her neighbor, I'd have been like, that's suspicious. That's weird. In the search in November of 88, Benjamin's body was found under the cement with a plastic bedsheet cover knotted around him, secured with duct tape, and covered with blue absorbent pads. His tox report showed amitriptyline, loxapine, and fluorazepam. Fluorazepam. <laughs> I know, you're all shocked. So, were all these bodies found the same day? Yes. Could you just imagine, like, one? I mean, I know that Serial killers burying bodies on the property isn't new. Just to think that these investigators or whoever, just one body right after the other, Mm -hmm. after the other, after the other. like Yeah, they found them all on the same day in November of 1988. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So if you think that you're having a bad day at work, always remember. Could be worse. Could be worse. (laughs) (laughs) On November 7th in 1988... Police interviewed one of Puente's former tenants, John Sharp. John informed the police that he had seen Bert two days earlier, but then he slid a note to one of the detectives where he wrote, quote, she's making me lie. That day, John secretly came back to the police station in the evening to tell an officer the truth. On November 11th in 1988, a detective returned to the boarding house and asked if he could take a look at some of the spots in her yard where it looked like dirt had been recently disturbed. She asked the detectives that were there. They had already looked through her house. Everything was good in the house, so they were going to go look mm-hmm. at the yard. She was like, hey, cool if I go get coffee? And they were like, yes. So she left. She dipped. She left. She watched them for a while when they started digging. She actually gave one of the detectives a shovel. And she watched through the window for a while, and then she went to go get her some coffee. You could you imagine just standing in the window like, yeah, that's that's old, that's old Bobby here. That's yeah, that's, you yeah. Know, like she's like, oh, they dig there, they're gonna find Robert. Like yeah, like, you know, like, like she literally handed them a shovel with the utmost confidence and was like, have a day. Like, yeah, <laughs> and then just watched them out the window, and then she was like, just go give me some coffee. Yeah, about I mean, that time. She was going to leave. But, yeah. You know. <laughs> and they they were like, yes, go have some coffee. You know, I heard the new place down the street's great. And then after that, just take a train right out of here. She bring us a cup of Joe. Yeah. Like, she's coming back. <laughs> bring us a cup of Joe while we dig up Joe. You yeah. Know? You, like, you know, she's about to go on the longest coffee run of her life. Yeah. <laughs> Within 30 minutes of digging the first initial hole... The detectives discovered the first of many bodies that day. And after a couple hours, Dorothea packed her bags and she went on that forever coffee run. And she was gone. On November 13th, an all-points bulletin was issued for Dorothea Puente. Three days later, Charles, I think his name is Wilgus, Wilgus, it's W-I-L-L-G-U-E-S. Anyway, and Jean Silver, who worked at CBS contacted police and pointed them to a motel in Los Angeles. Charles said that he had seen Puente, who was going by the name Donna Johansson, as an alias the day before at a local bar. Charles remembered seeing her on the CBS morning newscast and called Jean Silver, who then came to Charles's apartment where they made the phone call to police. 
Dorothy Puente was arrested that day at the motel. On November 17th and 88, Puente was transported via plane from Hollywood Burbank Airport to Sacramento with several police officers and booked into the county jail when she arrived in Sacramento. After the booking, she was charged with the murder of Bert Montoya. On March 10th and 89, criminal charges against Flores were dismissed due to the statute of limitations expiring three years after Gilmas' body was discovered. Flores was later granted full immunity if he agreed to testify against Dorothea, which he did. On March 31st in 89, an amended complaint was filed charging Puente with nine counts of first-degree murder with special circumstances which qualified her case for the death penalty. According to detectives, Puente had slowly drugged each victim until they OD'd and then wrapped them in bed sheets and plastic lining and then buried them in pits in the backyard. The preliminary hearing had 108 exhibits and 71 witnesses pulled by the prosecutor, and the prosecutor rested his case on May 24, 1990. On June 31, 1990, the judge agreed that her case had, quote, ample circumstantial evidence, and also that day she pled not guilty. That was the day that the judge agreed that they could have the death penalty on the table. It was an option, you know? Yeah. On February 9, in 1992, the trial began. Puente faced all nine murder charges in this one trial. 156 witnesses testified, more than 3,000 exhibits were shown, and over 22,000 pages of transcript were recorded. The jury deliberated for 11 days, but on August 2, 1993, the jury deadlocked on all nine counts. The jury was ordered to come back the next day and break the deadlock. And let me say, the reason that the jury deadlocked was not because they felt like there wasn't enough evidence or anything like that. It was because they were like, but she's a little old lady. I mean, I was about to say, I mean, it's pretty cut and dry for me. They literally all were like, we can't send a little old lady to to prison. She's a little old lady. That was, that was, that was the reason. This little old lady has been murdering half the town literally yeah, I and mean, then she put him in the yard like, yeah she ain't so little to be doing that no but i mean as far as evidence goes it's pretty solid it's it, sh- it, it shouldn't take 11 days i'm just saying maybe 11 minutes yeah if that okay and then after 11 days you deadlock and you're like but gam gam look at her her little bonnet like sir given half a chance she would poison you and and you would be in her yard so let her find out yeah you get social security check let her find out yep she's gone she'd be like whoop dead my next victim yep on august 26th puente was convicted of three counts benjamin fink leona carpenter and dorothy miller the jury were still deadlocked on the other six counts give me a break i know they're like, maybe some, but did Game Game have the strength to do all nine? No. They're in her yard, but... Literally. <laughs> During the penalty phase of the trial, the jurors stayed deadlocked on those last six counts, and so the death penalty was then dismissed. On December 10th, 1993, Dorothea Puente was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole or the three charges that she was found guilty on, and the other six were dismissed. Be so fucking for real yeah they're all in her yard except the one she you know floated down the river but like still <laughs> do they not deserve justice 
just because she's a little lady. Like, I don't give a like, fuck. Like you said, they were all found in her yard. Yeah. It's not like there were just those three in her yard and the other six were elsewhere. Like, they were all in her yard besides the one. Yeah. And he was found in that box uh-huh. that she had made. Like, please be so for real. Uh, and dude helped her carry it and testified against her in the trial. Yeah. And was like, I didn't know for sure because it was nailed shut, but I'm pretty sure when I built it, there was not a body inside. Yeah. I just, that blows my mind. Mm-hmm. Blows my mind. Yeah. Like, she's obviously not so feeble to be able to do this. And remember, she made herself look that way. And so... She did it on purpose. This kind of... You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of the Golden State Killer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because... Oh, my God. Because, <laughs> you know, yes, he did his crimes, and he wasn't found until many years later. Yeah. And so, he was an old man by the time they found him, but... I'm pretty sure I read that, like, he was riding motorcycles and shit. And, like, he was, and then he shows up acting like he can't walk. Yeah. And just so feeble. Like, my guy, you're going to get zero sympathy. Like, be so for real right now. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, he was in his garden when they found him. Yeah. And then he was like, let me take my roast out of the oven. Like, and then he gets to in front of the judge and he's like, can't hear and he can't walk. And it also reminds me of randy may yes you know yes you know when we went to to his parole hearing yeah his parole hearing he's just like i can't hear very well and i can't i'm like you know so they just act so feeble and this she has done this for years yeah she started this years ago when she was younger like in her late 50s i mean obviously she's a manipulator oh and a pathological liar and you trying to tell me that she's too feeble. Listen, they told you at that state institution, DeWitt, they told y'all she was a pathological liar with an unstable personality years ago. Yeah. They were like, she got issues. And everybody was like, she's fine. Yeah, like she's, she's cool. obviously has enough wit about her to like change her, her name and her and her. So many times. Just like her life so many times. Yeah. So, miss me with that. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's bullshit. Yeah. She was sent to live the rest of her days out at the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California. No, don't know if I'm saying it right, but... Dorothea Puente died in prison on March 27, 2011 from natural causes. She was 82 years old. Dorothea always said that she was innocent of her crimes and that she was a good caretaker, saying at one point, quote... The only time they were in good health was when they stayed at my home. I made them change their clothes every day, take a bath every day, and eat three meals a day. When they came to me, they were so sick, they weren't expected to live. While in prison, though, Dorothea did become a published author. She published a book through her pen pal, Shane Bugby, called Cooking with a Serial Killer. The book contains 50 recipes, and you can buy it on Amazon right now for the low, low price of $9.98. You know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to follow any damn recipes from a serial killer, especially one who killed people by poisoning them. You know in the ingredients of every recipe in there, fluorazepam's on there. (laughs) (laughs) I just 
add a pinch of fluorazepam. <laughs> and people buy this shit. And yeah. it has good reviews on Amazon. I'm like, no. why the fuck are you selling this? No, like, she's dead, but, like, at the same time, I'm, I'm not like, she doing took that. people's, several people's lives. Yeah. And wasn't even convicted of all of them, though she did it. Yeah. And you're selling her damn cookbook? No. Nope. I'm like, hell no. Absolutely not. Don't buy that shit. She killed people. Yeah, like, she... And I mean, vulnerable people. She manipulated vulnerable people, old people, mentally ill, people with addictions that were trying to get help, took advantage of them, manipulated Mm -hmm. them to where she could get their checks, killed them, and then buried them in her backyard. Yeah. No. Don't buy the damn cookbook. And Amazon, why the hell are you selling that? Period. You ain't itching for money that bad. I promise. Oh, absolutely I not. I spent so much money on your on Amazon for the holidays. I'm like, bitch, you ain't you ain't itching for nothing. <laughs> like, you, you're going to be fine. Oh, they're more than fine. Not selling a serial killer's damn cookbook. Yeah. Well, wow. Mm-hmm. That's a doozy. Yeah. She is death. The landlady. Yeah. Faux show. Mm-hmm. Landlord from hell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hope everybody's happy I did a murder case and not like an unsolved, mysterious case because... You do be loving those. I wanted to, but I didn't. (laughs) I can hear you, but I won't. (laughs) She refrained. I did. Well, all right. Thanks for listening, guys. Don't sign your benefits over to anyone. (laughs) Except like your kids. Maybe your spouse. Maybe. Think about it first. Yeah. Okay, then... Okay, thanks. Bye. Okay, thanks. I still did it again. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. (laughs) We'd like to thank Mikey Kinley for audio and editing and our friend Avalyn Yulaberry for our cover art. Make sure to like and follow us on social media on Facebook and Instagram. Our Instagram is M three podcast and you can find us on facebook under the name of our podcast which is murder mayhem and merlot (laughs) 